Good morning, church. The title of my message today is There is a Cost. There is a Cost. And you know, we as humans, we can sometimes spend crazy amounts of money on things that seemingly have no value. And the way that we spend our finances, the way that we spend our time, sometimes just really does not make sense. And when I was thinking about this today, I decided to look up some of the things that people have, just ordinary items, that people have spent extraordinary amounts of money on. And it's quite comical, to be honest. And so, um, the world's most valuable stamp, little tiny stamp, I came to find out, was sold for $9.5 million. $9.5 million. The most expensive or the most valuable license plate, again, this, these are things that people have actually paid money for, paid this amount of money for. The most valuable license plate was sold for $14.3 million. The most valuable coin and the, the value that this person paid for it is not the value of the coin itself, $18.9 million. The most valuable baseball, and now this is like, this is kind of cool, but certainly not worth the money. It was Mark McGuire's 1998 70th home run, so if anybody remembers that whole thing, like, that was a pretty big deal, but certainly not worth $3 million. A couple of other obscure items that people spent crazy amounts of money for, and I just, this was just for fun, but a Pez dispenser, $32,000, a corkscrew, $63,000, and a Coke can that really the only thing unique about it was that it had an error in the printing, $250,000. And as human beings, it's interesting how we attribute value to things. And, and as I thought about this idea and as I, as I did kind of this research on uh, value attribution, I started to realize that humans at times are really not that logical. And the way that we attribute value to things, this is something that we do every single day, even if we don't realize it. Now, value attribution as a term, to give some meaning or understanding of what I'm talking about here, value attribution serves as a quick mental shortcut to determine what's worthy of our attention. So when we encounter new objects or people or situations or choices that we have to make, the value that we assign to them shapes the future perceptions that we have of them. And uh, some of you may have seen recently on social media, the, uh, the Washington Post actually did a field study on this. And so they partnered with uh, a world-famous violinist named Joshua Bell. And, uh, and so Bell dressed up in just kind of some old clothes and, you know, wore a ball cap kind of down over his face. And he went down into a subway station and began to play the violin. Now, he was playing some of the most intricate violin pieces on the planet on a three and a half million dollar violin. And what's fascinating about this, this study that they did is that, and I've seen the, the video footage of it, maybe some of you have too, but literally people are walking by, hundreds of people are walking by and they are not even batting an eye to what's happening. Two days prior to this, he actually sold out uh, a huge theater where the average ticket price was $100. And so as the people are walking in the subway, they are not attributing any value to what they're hearing and what they're seeing. 
And yet, when people saw the advertisements and the billboards or whatever for this show, all of a sudden, they were ready to spend $100 on the ticket. The way that we attribute value sometimes is very much skewed. So the value that we attribute to different things determines the price that we're willing to pay for it. And whether we realize it or not, everything that we do in life has a cost. Every decision that we make has a cost. And it's, it's easy to think about this in terms of our finances and our purchase, purchases and so on. But, but beyond that, think about this, even any choice that we make. If I was to go hang out with a friend tonight, then that means I wouldn't be spending time with my wife or I wouldn't be resting, or I wouldn't be doing things around the house, whatever the case is. If I make the decision to go to university to study business, it means that I'm not choosing to go study something else or follow a different career path. And so there's a cost in this. And, and even if I choose to sleep in on Sunday morning and not come to church, the cost of that is missing church. Vice versa, if I choose to come to church, then there's still a cost, but the cost is missing some sleep or missing a beach day or whatever the case is. But the reality is no matter what our decisions are, there's always a cost. And when it comes to our relationship with Christ, Jesus was very clear, very clear that there would be a cost. He said in Luke 14, 27 to 28, he said, and if you do not carry your own cross and follow me, you cannot be my disciple. But don't begin until you count the cost. For who would begin construction of a building without first calculating the cost to see if there's enough money to finish it? And I think we can get tripped up with this sometimes because of the language that we use. Because on one hand, salvation in Christ is a free gift, and yet there is a cost. It doesn't seem to make sense, but, but salvation in Christ is a free gift in the sense that there's nothing that we can do to earn it. There's nothing that we do to deserve it. And we can't do enough gain, good things to gain it. It's by grace that we have been saved. And yet, when we put our faith in Christ and choose to follow him, things will change. And there are things in our lives that we will lose. And for some of us, after we choose to follow him, and then we begin to be confronted with this cost, we start to say, oh, I'm, I'm not sure if this is what I signed up for. I'm not sure if I'm ready to pay that cost or not. And the problem is, is then when we do that and when we resist it, that then leaves us in a powerless, unfulfilling Christianity. If you're not willing to pay the cost, we will not reap the riches of heaven. Because Jesus appeals to us for us to give everything to him, the good, the bad, the ugly, and in return, he promises something so much greater and so much more beautiful, and yet we can fail to see the value. We fail to see that what he offers us is far more significant. It's far more magnificent than anything that the world has to offer. It's like that simple picture that many of us have probably seen of the little child that stands before Jesus with a teddy bear. And Jesus stretches out his hand to the child, asking for it. What the child doesn't realize is that Jesus is holding a much bigger teddy bear behind his back that he then wants to give to the child. And sometimes we also fail to realize that, that though we might understand that making that first step towards Christ and saying, yes, I want to follow him has a cost. We might understand that. But what we don't always understand is that in order to continue to grow in that relationship with him, there is an ongoing cost. 
And you might say you've been a believer for years, and yet there is still so much unfulfillment in your walk with him. Or you've just been stuck in a rut, or you can't get breakthrough, or the Lord isn't using you in the way that you'd like. And it's because you haven't paid the price. And, and I don't say that with arrogance. I don't say that with condemnation whatsoever. But the reality is, is that there is a price to pay. If we want to move forward in all of these areas, in our relationship with him, there is sacrifice that needs to come on our part. You must be ready to be uncomfortable, or potentially look silly, or be vulnerable, or to give up worldly pleasures, whatever the case may be. And the church today really can relate so much with the principles that are taught in the parable of the rich young ruler. See, he comes to Jesus, and he wants eternal life. He wants Jesus. But then when Jesus instructs him that he's to go and sell all of his possessions, all of a sudden, this value attribution thing starts to play out in his head. And he says, I don't see enough value in the invitation of Jesus, even though it's there, to give up all my worldly possessions. And so he goes away, and he's sad. If we knew the heavenly riches that God wants to lavish upon us, if we knew the blessing of God that is available to each and every one of us, we would not have a hard time trying to figure out what's valuable and what's not. If we only knew the invitation extension that God puts out to us, and whether we're a believer or whether we're not, see that initial invitation for those that that aren't following Jesus if I could say, if you only knew, if you only knew, you know, we do evangelism in the church, not because we're just trying to like bump up our numbers. It's because we've been saved by God and have experienced his goodness and we want other people to experience that. It's not from a place of just trying to build an institution. It's because, you know what? God saved me and changed me and I want other people to experience the exact same thing because there's value in walking with Jesus Christ. And it's hard. I get it. If you are not currently following him, it's hard to see the value. It's hard to make that distinction. But, but you know what? It carries over into us as believers as well. Because there's always more. There's always more. Think about the riches of heaven. Just think about that for a second. And even Pastor Penny talking about his book and the magnificent things that are available, that are there. I mean, there's so much more for us believers to experience. There really is. There's more freedom. There's more joy. There's more contentment. But are we willing to pay the cost? Are we willing to pay the price? Are we willing to lay down our reputations, what other people think of us, or this cute little image that we've made for ourselves? Are we willing to lay that down in order to receive all that God has? My prayer is that we would fully and truly see the value of what it means to follow Christ. And you know, one of the biggest areas of our lives that I think we are often not willing to pay the price is in our private prayer lives. We can find just about, we can find time for just about anything else for, but prayer. And we can even attend prayer meetings and that's all good, but when it comes to going into the secret place with God, closing the door behind us and saying, God, I'm just here to meet with you one-on-one. For some reason, we struggle so much. And friends, can I tell you that there will never, there will never be an ideal time for prayer. There never will be. 
If you're waiting for God to just come and grab you by the hand and drag you into the prayer closet, it's not going to happen. Your flesh will always resist. And the cost in carving out time for prayer is actually not time itself. We all have time. I don't care how busy you are. We all have time. But the cost is fighting against your flesh so that even if you're tired, even if you're distracted, even if you just don't feel like it, you do it anyway. And I promise you, That if you go into the prayer closet and you don't feel like praying, but you would actually resolve in your heart that you're willing to sit there, that you're willing to push through anyway, it might be five minutes, it might be a half an hour, it might be an hour, I don't know. But every time, if you're willing to resolve in your heart and push through, God will meet you there. He will will pour out his presence on you. He will renew you and you'll walk out there changed. I promise you. And I have learned this. And I can say I promise you. There's certain, you know, there's not everything that I would say, oh, I promise you that this will happen. I promise you that this will happen. Because I've experienced it so much in my life. I'll never forget the first time that this became such a reality. It was, it was probably five or six years ago, and I had just gone through a season um, of awesome prayer where it just felt like it was so easy to go into the prayer closet and pray. But then I went through this season that it was just dry. It's like every time I sat down to pray, I just couldn't, I just felt like I was just hitting a wall at all times. And I remember I was almost angry. Like I was defiant and like almost arrogant. And I said, God, I'm going to sit on my couch. I'm not going to say a word, but I'm just going to wait. I'll wait here all night if I have to. And I'm going to wait until your presence overwhelms me so much that I begin to weep in your presence. And I just sat there and I just sat there just and it was probably 45 minutes of just silence sitting there. And all of a sudden, the presence of God came down upon me, and I just began to weep. And I just began to weep because God was pouring his love on me. He said, that's my son, and thank you for paying the price. I will meet you all the time, but you got to show me that your faith believes that I will. And he will for every one of you. And if you feel like your prayer life is dry and you just can't break through, if you would resolve in your heart to pay the price and sit there and just say, God, I'm not leaving until I meet with you, you will get breakthrough. There will come that point where you step from the flesh into the spirit. And as you continue and continue and continue, what you realize is that you get more hungry for it. You can't wait to go to the prayer closet because of the renewing and the refreshing that happens. And it just propels you forward. You know, one of the things that I always ask people when, when I meet with them, I ask this all the time, I'll say, how is your prayer life? And uh, most people will, will respond in the same way, say something along the lines of, well, it could be better. Well, that's a reality, I think, for every one of us. It doesn't matter how good your prayer life is. It can always be better. But I would say to those that um, would say that their prayer life really is non-existent, I say to them, if you would be willing to take two weeks, to take two weeks and every single day dedicate a half an hour to prayer, uninterrupted, focused, intentional, all the distractions aside, you'd be willing to do that every day for two weeks. I promise you that at the end of the two weeks, you would be blown away by what you would see the Lord do in your life. I promise that that would happen. And for many of us, Sometimes that's all we need is just that glimpse of what it means to to pay the price in prayer. And once we get that glimpse, then we're just spurred on more. Then we just, 
We want to. We want to go into the prayer closet because it's the most beautiful thing that we can do. And it's the fuel to our spiritual lives. Are you willing to pay the price in prayer? Now, I have two challenges for us this morning that I believe that the Lord has given me. And, and one of them we've kind of already touched on, but I'll come back to it in a little bit. But, but this is the first one. The necessity for the world to see the value in being a follower of Christ has never been greater. Not the value of going to church, not the value of having Christian beliefs, but the value of truly and genuinely following Christ. The world needs to see that the people of God don't just have different beliefs, but that there is actually something different about them. That when a believer of Jesus is around, that there is just something different about the atmosphere because of what they carry, because that they are carrying the presence of God, and that there's just something different about the way that they act, and there's something even different about the look on their face because they are shining in the light of Jesus. And this only comes through a people who are sold out for Christ and willing to pay the price in prayer and in devotion to the things of God. You know, the world might be closed off to the institution of the church, and the world might have a sour taste in its mouth due to differing social beliefs or whatever it is, and, and there's never been a time where an invitation to church is a harder thing. But when an unbeliever comes into contact with a believer who is full of the Spirit of God, they better know that there is something different about them. And they better say, I want what that person has because there is something different about them. And church, this is our best means of reaching the world, of being a people who are full of God in the workplace, in the streets, in our social settings, whatever it is, because people need to know that there's something different, that there's value in following Christ. Matthew 5.16 says, In the same way, let your light shine before others, so that they may see your good works, and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. And 1 Peter 2.12 says, When you are around people who do not know God, be careful how you act. Even if they talk against you as wrongdoers, in the end, they will give thanks to God for your good works when Christ comes again. And, and now we're not talking about putting on a front, and we're not talking about just doing good things for the sake of it. We're not talking about just random acts of kindness, though, though that's good. Anybody can do that. You don't even have to be a good person to do a random act of kindness. Now, that's great. That's fantastic. But what we're talking about is a real, genuine, Holy Spirit-empowered love that oozes out of us. And this only comes from a costly place of intimacy with the Father. Otherwise, it, it might be a nice gesture. It might be a good thing. But it's ultimately powerless to affect real change. Now, the second challenge that I have for us, we're going to look at Mark chapter 5 um, to work through this. And in this chapter, in verses 21 to 43, uh, we have two separate stories. Now, the way that these stories are told um, is referred to as what's called a Markin sandwich. And now I know, you know, real technical term, but that's actually the term of what it is. And what it means is that the author Mark, he actually does this nine different times in the Gospel of Mark. And so it's when he begins a story... And then that story gets interrupted by another story, and then he comes back along and he finishes the first story that he started. And so there's, there's a, a story sandwiched in between, um, between another one. And his purpose in this, it's a literary tool that he uses in order to connect them and to, 
to prove a point through the two stories together. So in this particular case, uh, it starts out with a man named Jairus. He's the ruler of the synagogue. And he comes to Jesus, and his daughter is not well, and he asks Jesus to come and, and to pray for her. And Jesus says, yes, I'll do it. Then it's interrupted at this point by the woman who had the condition of bleeding for 12 years, which many people are probably familiar with that story. And, uh, and he prays for her. She is healed. And then we catch back up again with Jairus, and we finish off that story. So, uh, so in, in a lot of times in this portion of Scripture, it's the woman with the condition of bleeding that's focused on, but I'm going to focus more on Jairus. Um, we will um, touch on her as well, but let's read, let's read the story. And again, I'm, I'm going to skip over the, the story about the woman, um, starting in verse 21. It says, And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet and implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her, so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him. So skipping down to verse 35, we pick it back up. It says, While he was still speaking, there came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. They came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw a commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead, but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But he put them all outside and took the child's father and mother and those who were with him and went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha kumi, which means little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this. And he told them to give her something to eat. So Jairus, the ruler of the synagogue, again, just as a recap, he comes to Jesus, he falls at his feet, and he earnestly implores him, to come and pray for his daughter. Jesus says, yes, I will do that. And they begin to go. And, and now just to fill in the blank with the story of the woman, as they're going, the crowds are gathered around them. And there's a woman who's had this condition of bleeding for 12 years. And, and she's desperate. She's desperate for healing. And so she moves her way through the crowd. And she says, if I could just touch the hem of his garment, I know that I can be healed. And so she does that. And, and Jesus senses that power has left him. And, and he addresses her and he calls her daughter and, and she's healed. And then we go back to, again to the story of Jairus. Again, they come, the people come and tell, tell them that the, the girl has in fact died, not to bother the teacher anymore. But Jesus tells Jairus, just believe. And so they go and... and he goes into the room with the little girl. It's such a beautiful phrase. It's such a beautiful thing that he says to her when he says, little girl, I say to you, arise. He grabs her by the hand and says, I say to you, arise. And she's healed and she's brought back to life. Now, there's a lot of things that we could look at from these stories. But there's one particular point that I want to make. If you notice in the text, Jairus is only referred to by his name, by Jairus, one time. Every other time, he's referred to as the ruler of the synagogue. Now, that can seem like an insignificant detail. It could seem like it really doesn't 
matter or whatever, but if you think about it, Jairus is a lot easier to write and a lot easier to say than the ruler of the synagogue. And the fact that Mark continuously refers to him as the ruler of the synagogue must mean that there's significance in that. And so let's think for a minute. So this man, Jairus, he is a religious leader. He's the ruler of the synagogue. Let's think about the relationship that Jesus had with the religious leaders at this time. It was not good. It was the religious leaders that were coming against him. It was the religious leaders that were intimidated by him and were pushing back against him. And this guy was one of them. And so think about this act. This is a costly act on his behalf, on his part. You think about even Nicodemus who had come to Jesus at nighttime because he was afraid. He didn't want anybody to see that he was coming to Jesus. Yet this man, Jairus, comes to Jesus in broad daylight and falls at his feet and tells him and asks him to come. This was a costly act. This was a man who had a reputation. This was a man who had status. This was a man who had a lot of things to lose. And yet that didn't stop him from coming to Jesus. Why? Because he saw the value. He knew who Jesus was. He knew that he was who he said he was, and he knew that he could heal his daughter. So all of the things that he had, all the worldly things that he had that he had accumulated, he realized that coming to Jesus was far greater and far more valuable. It's interesting that in these two different stories, we have a lot of similarities and we have a lot of differences as well. In the one story with the woman, she's desperate, she has a need, but she has nothing. She's viewed as unclean. She probably doesn't have a husband because of the condition. She's in pain. And she desperately comes to Jesus and asks for healing, and he heals her. But then we have Jairus, who's got everything. He's got a great life. He's got respect. He's got reputation. And he also comes and he falls at the feet of Jesus. I'm going to ask the worship team to come and join me. My point in this is that whether we find ourselves in a place where we have nothing or whether we have everything, the value of coming to Jesus is equal. And you know, when I think about these two different scenarios, my heart breaks for this woman, of course, who has nothing, and anybody else that can relate to her situation. It breaks for those that have nothing and, and are desperate. But I honestly think that they're in a better position. And for me, in, in my salvation, I came to Jesus when I had nothing, and I'm actually thankful for that, because otherwise I probably wouldn't have. And I really think that in our church, in the church, in the world, for that matter, we can think often the problem is those that are out there, that are struggling, that are addicted, that have all of these issues, when in reality, the problem is those that have so much and don't recognize their need for him. There's such a barrier. And I'm not, and I'm not just talking about those that aren't following Christ. I'm talking about those in the church as well. Because in the church, it's so easy to just be comfortable with our, 
regular Christianity, we're saved, we, we love Jesus, we go to church on Sunday, and yet there's still so much unfulfillment in our life because we're not willing to pay the cost. We're really not recognizing the full value of what it means to be sold out radical followers of Jesus. And so as we wrap up this morning, I just want to encourage each and every one of you to check your own heart. And this has been, been something for me as I've been preparing this message that I've just been saying, God, what am I not releasing what are the things that I'm afraid of giving up to you? What's keeping me from the blessings of heaven and all that you have for me? I just want to encourage each and every one of you, maybe there's some here this morning, you would say, you know what? I've been thinking that I've got it all together. I've got a great life and things are good. Praise God for that. You've got a good family. You've got a good job. You've got a good reputation. Praise God for all of those things. But if any of those keep you from really giving it all over to him, if it keeps you from being willing to maybe look a little silly, if it keeps you from not just bowing before your king and looking a little radical, I encourage you to lay it down today. believe that if the church would not be so concerned about our status and about all the things that we've built and been more concerned with just knowing him and living for him. It's so easy in Canada, in North America, to just go through our easy, nice lives, and that's not discounting all the struggles that we still have. But it's easy to just go through and miss out on so much, so much that God wants for us, for everyone in this room. There's so much more. There's so much more to experience in his love and his joy and his peace if we would just see the value of what it is to just give it all to him to give it all to him, to not be just Sunday Christians, but to be 24-7 Christians, willing to pay the price in prayer, willing to pay the price in our own image. Can we stand together? As we go into worship, you know, this is an opportunity for you to make this stand. And you know, sometimes coming to the front, coming to the altar can be an intimidating thing, but are you willing are you willing to actually not care what anybody else thinks? And it's not that there's anything magical about this space up here, but sometimes it's just that act of humility to say, God, I don't care what anybody else thinks. I just want to come and I just want to sit at your feet. I just want to come and meet with you. I'm going to lay it all down. And so I encourage you this morning that if that's you, maybe you've never come to the altar before because it's just been intimidating or you didn't want to look a certain way or you didn't want to be uncomfortable. Today is your morning to break off those insecurities, to break off those fears, to break off whatever lie the enemy has told you. Today is your day to just say, I'm going to come. I don't care. I'm coming because I know you're going to meet me there, Lord. Thanks for listening to the GT Moncton podcast. For full services, head over to our YouTube channel. 
If you have any questions or want to get connected, go to gtmoncton.com and follow us on social media at gtmoncton to stay up to date on what's happening here at GT. God bless.